All right, would you take the word of God with me this evening and turn in the book of Exodus in chapter 21. Exodus in chapter 21. As you're turning there, we're going to look at a second category or division of the law. There are really three categories that are included when we refer to the law. For example, there is the moral law. We would uh, call this the timeless law in the sense that it does not need necessarily to be written in tables of stones because it's written in the heart of man. Uh, That's the moral law. Now those are the Ten Commandments. We found those in Exodus chapter 20. There is a second category of the law, and that is there is the judicial or the civil law. And um, you might refer to those as the judgments of God. Now, those are really, the judgments of God are really the governing uh, social conduct for the nation of Israel. Uh, These are first found here in Exodus chapter 21 and chapter 23. We find them uh, as well in the book of, uh, through the remainder of the book of Exodus, the book of Numbers, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. Uh, and then there's a third category, and that is there is the ceremonial law. And uh, that deals with the religious life surrounding the tabernacle of the congregation of Israel. It's referred, the tabernacle is, is called the tabernacle of the congregation of Israel. And so it concerns, again, the nation of Israel exclusively. Now, these were instituted really beginning in Exodus chapter Uh, 25. We'll see that when we get there. He's going to talk about the Ark of the Covenant and beginning to assemble the things that are necessary for the construction of the tabernacle and all the elements. And uh, if you would, the religious uh, rituals that are to be performed. And so three categories, the uh, moral law, the judicial or the civil law, and the ceremonial law. Uh, Those three categories applied specifically here as we see to the nation of Israel. That's the primary application. The moral law applies really to all men, that all men are condemned under the moral law for having violating God's moral law. But God had something specifically that He wanted to do with the nation of Israel. One of those chief things is not just the covenants and the laws and the ceremonies and the promises and the covenants, but the thrust of the Old Testament points us to one thing. Jesus Christ. Um, If you hold your place here, if you turn, before we read here, I would like to bring your attention to that in the book of Romans. If you turn to have your hand there in Exodus 21 and turn with me uh, to the book of Romans. And uh, notice in uh, chapter, chapter 9, he says this, Romans 9, verse 1, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, for I could wish that myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Who are these people who are, notice, Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law? and the service of God, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and of whom as concerning the flesh, notice, Christ came. Notice the Bible says, of whom, 
As concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. So when we think about the nation of Israel and that which was given to the nation of Israel, there is one point of emphasis in all of this, and that is Jesus Christ. Now often we refer to that when we think about the ceremonial law, the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, the brazen altar, the table of shewbread, all those things that we will look at, but we don't tend to think about the judicial or the civil law as pointing us to Jesus Christ. So as we consider all of the aspects of the law, we have to be aware that the Old Testament faithfully points us to Jesus Christ. Uh, And I say this carefully knowing that as we look at the ceremonial law, we see Christ. But God did not institute the feasts, the ceremonies, for the sake of having feasts and ceremonies. Uh, These were instituted with a specific purpose in mind. As it comes to the judicial and the civil law, we may tend to ignore how these also point us to Jesus Christ. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus Christ said this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. He said this, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy the law but to fulfill. Notice there is no category of the law that he mentions there. He comes to fulfill the law. And he says this, For verily I say unto you, Till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Now Jesus Christ is speaking of himself that he came to fulfill the law. And as we think here about, in the Old Testament, the moral law, God fulfilled that law. As pertaining to the civil law, the judicial law, God also, Jesus Christ also fulfilled that law. And as it pertains to the ceremonial law, God also, and uh, in a greater way than any man had ever fulfilled, He fulfilled also every aspect of the ceremonial law. He came to fulfill that. And so as we have that in mind, let's begin here as we, in Exodus 21, as we deal with the civil law, again, what is the nation of Israel to be governed by in its social affairs? Now in this chapter, he deals with, as we'll see here, uh, the idea of servant and how long they serve their masters. Uh, He goes on to deal with different aspects of that. Now, we're going to begin this evening reading verse 1 through verse 6. So Exodus chapter 21, would you stand with me as we read God's Word? Exodus chapter 21 and verse 1. And I want us to have in mind this evening Jesus Christ as we read this. Exodus 21 verse 1. Now, these are the judgments which thou shalt set before them. Moses, you're going to set this before them, the nation of Israel. If thou buy an Hebrew servant, six years he shall serve, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he came in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he were married, then his wife shall go with him. If his master have given him a wife, and she have borne him 
sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out by himself. And if the servant shall plainly say, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him unto the judges. He shall also bring him to the door or unto the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall serve him, notice those last words, forever. Forever. As we look here at the judgments, as he begins to expound on these judgments, we begin to look here at the very first judgment. It pertains to those who are bought as a servant, and the account is given to us, but I want you to notice here that there are some specific things we find in this account that help us to see that this is beyond just what is to be seen in the literal sense. We know that a servant in any capacity served his master until his time was fulfilled or until he died. But here our text says that this servant, based on his choice, will serve his master forever. So I don't think we're looking primarily here at the earthly. As much as we're talking about a servant who is a servant that is established forever. And I believe it's talking about Jesus Christ. Now I'd like to pray. I'm going to preach this evening on a message that I've entitled, Jesus Christ, the Perfect Servant. Jesus Christ, the Perfect Servant. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this evening for your word. Enlighten us, Lord, by your word. As we begin, Lord, to study these civil laws with regards to the interactions of men in the nation of Israel, Lord, help us to learn some things about Jesus Christ because the New Testament says that he came to fulfill the law. He spent the adequate time to show his disciples in the prophets and the Psalms, beginning at Moses, the things concerning himself. And so, our Lord, I pray that you would help us to see you above all things as the perfect servant. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Before we begin to look at our text, I would like to begin by making the connection between the reference here we find in Exodus chapter 21 and Jesus Christ. Now, at the onset, you may say, well, there is not really any connection that I can see between this passage and Jesus Christ. But as we think about the Bible as a whole, we think here about the book of Exodus. He begins here where it, with talking about a servant. And let me just lay out what we just read. He talks about a, if there's an Hebrew man who is a servant, who is bought as a servant, or who joined himself to his master as a servant, he has a time that is allotted to him that he is to fulfill, and that is a period of six years. After that period of six years is accomplished, that means on the seventh year, uh, that servant has the ability to go out free. If uh, this servant... Uh, comes into this service having wife and children, he will leave with wife and children. But if this uh, servant comes to his master and his master gives him a wife and he has children uh, by his wife, 
then when the seven year, the six years is accomplished of the seventh year, then he is free to go and he has a decision to make. He can leave if he came in to this service with his wife and children with them. If he did not come into that, he cannot leave with them. And he has a choice to make either to depart by himself or, on the other hand, to say audibly, to declare, I love my master, I love my wife, I love my children. And he makes a decision voluntarily, not forced, but voluntarily to serve, to continue to serve his master. As a result, his master brings him to the judge as a way to testify that indeed this has been his decision. This is not a light decision to make. And uh, there is a, a, a signal or a sign or a seal in a sense that is to uh, make this decision something that is visible to the world. The master brings is the bring the servant to the doorpost. And as he's on the doorpost, he is lining up his ear against the doorpost, the doorpost and his master then drives, according to verse 6, a hole through his ear so that his ear now uh, is uh, pierced, signifying that he is under his master's rule and he is serving his master not because he is forced to, not because he has been bought, but because he loves him. Because he loves him. And he is going to walk for the, re the remainder of his life with that sign that he has voluntarily chosen willingly to serve his master. Now, that's what the law tells us. Uh, before we get carried away here and say, well, this seems a little peculiar and a little strange uh, let me remind you that the Bible is here. This is not given. Uh, God is not giving this that this is to be applied to every society throughout all time. This is specifically to be applied to the nation of Israel. And we've already read from the book of Romans that everything in the ways that God dealt with the people of Israel, whether it was with the moral law or the judicial law or the ceremonial law, had a point and a purpose in it. And God specifically wanted the interactions with Him and His commands and His laws with the nation of Israel to teach us some things, not just about God, but also about Jesus Christ. As we hold our place here, I would like for you to turn with me to the book of Psalms. And we're going to look at the 40th Psalm. Psalm 40. <clears throat> if you turn there in Psalm 40... A good portion of this psalm is dedicated as a messianic psalm in this sense that it points us to Jesus Christ. Many psalms do so. Some psalms will be stronger in that, like Psalm 22 is very strong in its messianic prophecy. Uh, psalm 40 is also a messianic prophecy. And I'd like to read just a number of verses here in the middle of the psalm. Let's begin in verse 6. Psalm 40 and verse 6. Notice the Bible says, Sacrifice and offering thou didst not desire, mine ears hast thou opened. Burnt offering and sin offering hast thou not required. Then said I, lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me, 
I delight to do thy will, O my God, yea, thy law is within my heart. As we read those things, we uh, note a, a number of things. First of all, we know that this is a messianic psalm because we'll see in just a moment that Hebrews chapter 10 refers back to Psalm uh, chapter 40 with reference to Jesus Christ with those exact words. But I'd like to bring your attention here that in Psalm 40, in verse 6, he says, Sacrifice and offering thou didst not desire, mine ears hast thou opened. Now, the word here that we find opened is uh, not in the sense of he is uh, dumb, he cannot hear, and now he can hear. The word open here means to dug or to be bored in. And so the idea here is a reference back to this idea that we find in Exodus chapter 21, where the servant who loves his master decides to stay in service for his master, and there's a signal to show us that his ear is to be bored through. And here in this Messianic psalm, we find that Jesus Christ, as we see that in just a moment in the book of Hebrews, refers to his ears having been opened. There is clearly here a picture for us. His ears haven't been bored through. If you uh, hold your place uh, still there in those two portions and turn with me to the book of Hebrews and chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Notice Hebrews chapter 10 and he is talking here about the offerings that are and the sacrifices that are continually being offered. And notice what he says in verse 5, Wherefore, when he cometh, now he had said in verse 4, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Hebrews 10.4. Notice verse 5. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. This is a reference back to Psalm 40. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written uh, of me to do thy will, O God. Above when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin thou wouldest not, neither has pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then said I, lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So clearly here we see twice as he references back Psalm 40, that this is a messianic psalm referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. But back to Psalm, uh, chap, uh, psalm 40, he says this here as we refer back to this Messianic psalm. He says, Sacrifice and offering thou didst not desire, mine ears hast thou opened, burnt offering and sin offering hast, ha, hast thou not required. Then said I, lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written, I, notice, delight to do thy will, O oh my God, yea, thy law is within my heart. Notice here that the Messiah is presented as being subject, as being submissive, as being a servant. 
But not just any servant, not a servant that is forced, not a servant that is required, but a servant that delights to do the will of God. So as we go back to Exodus chapter 21, we read here about the servant and his decision to serve his master. Jesus Christ, when he came and ministered among the people, he made constant reference to the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, but one of the times that he refers to the scriptures in John 5.39, he said this, Search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. And so the scriptures are testifying of Jesus Christ. There is no doubt we can look at Exodus chapter 21 and say there is the literal, there is the primary application of a servant and the choice of a servant who loves his master to remain with his master. But who stands as the great illustration of this law? It's none other than Jesus Christ himself. Jesus Christ, by the way, not just in the New Testament, but also in the Old Testament, He is regularly referenced. By the way, the Messiah is regularly referenced as a servant. As you hold your place here, let me give you a few examples, and all of those are Messianic references. Isaiah 42 verse 1 says, Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, mine elect, and whom my soul delighteth, I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. God refers to the Messiah as his servant. Uh, Isaiah 52 verse 13. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and very high. Isaiah 53 verse 11. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Zechariah chapter 3 verse 8. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, thou and thy fellows that sit before thee, for they are men wondered at. For behold, I will bring forth my servant the branch. That's Jesus Christ. The branch, the root out of dry ground, the root of uh, Jesse. And so we see here that throughout the Old Testament, and there are countless others, where the Messiah is referred to not just in his capacity, in his deity, but also that he's referred to as a servant. If you were to read the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, there each account emphasizes a particular aspect of the ministry of Jesus Christ. So for example, in Matthew, the emphasis is to the Jews that Jesus Christ is the King of the Jews. He is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the one that the Jews have been uh, waiting for. Uh, uh, Luke uh, tend to emphasize Jesus Christ as the perfect man. The one who was without sin. The one who was perfect in everything that he did. Uh, the Gospel of John refers to Jesus Christ and emphasizes His deity. In the very first verse, in the beginning was the Word, 
And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It can't be any clearer. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so we think about Matthew emphasizing uh, the fact that Jesus Christ is the king of the Jews, the line of the tribe of Judah. Luke emphasizes Jesus Christ as the perfect man. John emphasizes the deity of Christ. But Mark, uh, deferring from all the other gospels, not deferring, but uh, complementing the other gospel in this way, refers to Jesus Christ as the perfect servant. Servant. You see, that's who Jesus Christ is. And that was not just what we see him, how we see him in the New Testament it was, it's how he was prophesied in the Old Testament, presenting the Messiah as being the servant of God. The servant. The New Testament no doubt emphasizes this. We saw just a moment ago in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 9, Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first that he may establish the second. Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry, for example in Luke 2, uh, 2 49, this is what he himself referred to himself as. Luke 2 49, How is it that ye sought me, Wished ye not that I must be about my father's business? That's Jesus Christ as a child, 12-year-old. Luke 22, verse 27, For whether is greater he that sitteth at meat or he that serveth, is not he that sitteth at meat, but I am among you as he that serveth. That's what Jesus said. I come to you and here's what I am. You've already declared who I am. I am the son of the living God. But I want you to know that I am among you and my role here among you is to serve you. In John 6, 38, Jesus said, For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. In the example to the believers at Rome, he encourages them to follow the example of Jesus Christ and here's what he says about Jesus Christ in Romans chapter 15, verse 3. For even Christ pleased not himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproached thee fell on me. And so Jesus Christ, during his earth, earthly ministry, although we know that he is God in the flesh, we know that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, we know he is the perfect man, the Bible emphasizes that Jesus Christ is also the perfect servant. And the New Testament emphasizes this all throughout. Paul puts it this way when he encourages the believers at Philippi to follow the example of Jesus Christ. He said, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Who being in the form of God, he is God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. And he took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And so we see that one of the ways in which the Old and the New Testament emphasizes the Messiah is that Jesus Christ is a servant. But he is not just any servant. He is the perfect servant. The perfect servant. There are three aspects that I would like to emphasize in Exodus chapter 21 concerning 
this servant that we find here. Notice the first aspect that we find is the fulfilling of his service. The Bible tells us in Exodus 21 verse 1, Now these are the judgments which thou shalt set before them. If thou buy an Hebrew servant six years, he shall serve, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. For he came in by himself, he shall go out by himself. Uh, if, he be, if he were married, then his wife shall go out with him. The first thing we note about here, this service, is the fulfilling of his service. The fulfilling of his service. If you notice here that there is a specific time period that is laid out to where the servant who is serving under his master has a fulfilling time frame. In other words, his service is not to go on and on and on and on and on forever. In this sense, the instruction was given that it is limited. In other words, there is a time where he begins and there is a time when his time has been fulfilled. Where he has proved his service, where he has been faithful to accomplish what he set out to do. And here we find that the first emphasis is the fulfilling of the service. Now the reason why I liken this to the Lord Jesus Christ is that Jesus Christ also fulfilled a service. I just mentioned it just a moment ago, but in Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus Christ said, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Jesus Christ, when He came, we could say that His ministry began when He was 30 years of age. It lasted for three and a half years. Uh, we know he lived for approximately 33 and a half years, but he fulfilled his course. And if you remember Jesus Christ, throughout his earthly ministry, he constantly emphasized his subjection to the will of the Father. Even it's interesting, before the crucifixion, before the crucifixion, uh, the Father at the baptism, Jesus said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Even at the Mount of Transfiguration, before the crucifixion was done, the Father spoke from heaven saying that He had glorified the Son. In other words, Jesus Christ, in His service and to uh, under God the Father, had demonstrated Himself to be perfect, to fulfill every respect of the law, to fulfill that time period that was allotted Him. Notice, He came, the Bible says, to do His will. He didn't come to do his own will, but he put himself under the authority of the Father to accomplish something specific. We think about the ministry of Jesus Christ, and we could go on and on, and we could say that there are two fulfillments to his ministry that was prophesied in the Old Testament. He would come, he would be the Messiah, he would preach of himself, uh, he would heal uh, the sick, he would make uh, the lame to walk again, he would make uh, the uh, deaf uh, to hear, the dumb to speak, and so on. And, and so that's what he would do, and he fulfilled that, and he lived according to the Word of God, a perfect, sinless life. He fulfilled his service as the perfect servant always doing those things which please the Father. By doing so, glorifying the name of the Father. That, that's what Jesus did. He fulfilled His service. 
But if you remember, there comes a point of transition uh, from the time that he lived a perfect sinless life, from the time that he had a perfect ministry, always doing those things that were according to the will of the Father, but then he comes at a point where he has a choice to make. And if you remember what he says, Jesus, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, not my will, but thine be done. He said, accept this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. The first part of his service was fulfilled in the sense of a servant who was required to do everything that his master wanted him to do. Jesus Christ fulfilled that in every respect in conformity to the law of God. Jesus Christ met the standard of God that no other man could, could, was able to meet. He fulfilled that perfect standard as a servant. And so we see an emphasis in Exodus 21 on the fulfilling of the service. The service has been accomplished. This uh, servant has been faithful. He's done now. He is, he is free. He is free to go. But we not only see the fulfilling of his service, but there's a second point of emphasis, but we see the, de the declaring of his love. If you notice what the Bible says, it says if, he came, verse 3, by himself. He shall go out by himself. If he were married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master had given him a wife, and she have borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out by himself. And if the servant shall plainly say, here it is, I love, wait a minute, is that right? Who's mentioned first? I love my master. Number one. Number two, my wife and my children. Now, now, now nobody in their right mind will say, well, th th this seems right. Unless you're looking at a picture or a type. Uh, because we know what God, the course that God has set for man with regards to his relationship in the affairs of man, that a man is to be primarily given to his wife, the wife to her husband, not to uh, a master, not to another man. So we're looking for uh, something that is beyond human affairs, that is natural and normal. There's something beyond that that we are to see. And here we see that the servant is basically declaring his love. And the love that is mentioned here first is the love not for the wife, not for the children, but for the master. And he declares that love. Notice the text even tells us that the servant shall plainly say, plainly say, I love my master, my wife, and my children. I will not go free. I will not go free. Do you remember that during the ministry of Jesus Christ for three and a half years, He did always those things that please the Father. But as He came to the crucifixion, He said, Not my will, but thine be done. And if you remember... In those times before the crucifixion, after his ministry and his perfect fulfillment of his service to God, we find Jesus Christ making a decision when he said, for example, when he stood before Pilate, Pilate says, don't you know that I have power to take your life? And you remember what Jesus said? 
uh, he, you have no power except from God. But Jesus made it clear throughout his ministry that uh, no man took his life. He laid it down willingly himself. He was not forced. Even you see him in the Garden of Gethsemane. The picture is there for us. He's in the garden. He says, not my will, but thine be done. And immediately as he wakes up, uh, not wakes up, wakes up the disciples. He was fully awake. He was praying. He goes to the disciples. He wakes them up. And he knows that the crowd is coming, that Judas is coming with the soldiers. And he goes out to meet them. He didn't go to the garden to hide. He went to the garden to make a decision that nobody was forcing him to do this. Nobody was making him do this. He was making that decision voluntarily. And what propelled him to make that decision voluntarily? It is the declaration of his love. John 3.16 puts it this way, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. The Bible tells us in the book of Corinthians that the love of Christ constrains us. His great love for us. Why did Jesus Christ go to the cross? Why did He give His life for us? Why did He lay down His life willingly for us? Because He loved us. And so we see not only the fulfilling of His service, the declaring of His love. And notice His love, His love and His intent is not primarily uh, for the benefit of man as much as it is for the glory of the Father. For the glory of the Father. I love my master, my wife and my children. I will not go out free. It is interesting at this time to think about as we look at this servant. There's a contrast that is established for us in the book of Romans between Adam and Jesus Christ. If you turn with me to the book of Romans in chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. In Romans chapter 5, really from verse 12 down to verse 21, we see a contrast put forth between Adam and Jesus Christ. In the text is referred to as one man, Adam, one man, Jesus Christ. And we have really the contrast between the two. And it's quite an amazing contrast. We see really as we proceed through the text, verse 12, Wherefore, as by one man, Adam, Sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin was, is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned, after the similitude of Adam's transgression. Who, Adam, who is the figure of him that was to come. Notice, he is the figure of him who is to come. He is not like him. He is not a partaker with Him. He is a figure of Him who is to come. That means the Messiah would be flesh and bones. Just like Adam was. What did Adam? What did Adam bring into this world? Notice what Adam brought in and what Jesus Christ brought in. Verse 15, But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one, Adam... Many be dead, much more the grace of God, and the gift of grace which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. And not as it was by one man that sin, Adam, 
So is the gift, for the judgment was by one man to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. Verse 17, For if by one man's offense, Adam, death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign by the life of one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Here's what Adam brought in. He brought offense. Jesus Christ brings a free gift. Adam brings death. Uh, uh, Jesus Christ brings eternal life. Adam brought condemnation. Jesus Christ brings justification. Adam brought the offense. Uh, Jesus Christ brought grace. In Adam, death reigned. In Christ, righteousness reigns. Adam brings an offense against God. Jesus Christ brings the righteousness of God. Again, he repeats that Adam bring, bring, brought in condemnation. Jesus Christ brings in justification. Uh, uh, Adam was disobedient obedient. Jesus Christ was obedient. In Adam, many were made sinners. In Christ, many are made righteous. In Adam, the law condemns us. In Christ, grace justifies us. In Adam, sin abounded. In Christ, grace much more abounds. In Adam, sin reigned. In Christ, grace reigns. In Adam, there was death. In Christ, there was eternal life. There was death through sin in Adam. There is eternal life through righteousness in Jesus Christ. Why does he spend time, the time to set forth this contrast between this one man, the first Adam, and this other man, Jesus Christ, the last Adam? Why bring in this contrast and show that they are two completely different servants? One Bible commentator put it this way. He said, The servanthood of Christ was perfectly voluntary. And herein we behold the uniqueness of it. Who naturally chooses to be a servant? How different from the first Adam? If you remember, Adam was given the place of servant, but he forsook that. He was required to be in subjection to his maker, required, but he revolted against it. And what was it that lured him away from this place of submission to his maker is that you can be like God. That was the appealing cause the appealing lie that caused the downfall of that servant who was supposed to be subject to Christ, who had to be, who was a servant. But Jesus Christ is completely different. It's the exact opposite of Adam. You see, Adam was created and God gave him a place of service. Jesus Christ is the creator himself. He is God in the flesh. And yet as God, he did not, uh, he, he made himself of no reputation. 
That's what he did. And he took, the Bible says, the form of a servant. And by the way, when the temptation came uh, uh, and approached him and sought to induce him to repeat and to repudiate his dependency and his subjection to God, he announced his unflattering purpose to live in subjection to the Father all the time. Never for a moment did he deviate from the path of complete submission to the Father's will. What a complete contrast. The man who was made a servant, created to be in subjection to God, rebelled, was unfaithful, and sinned against the Holy God. That's one man, Adam, but Jesus Christ... Jesus Christ is completely different. He was not forced. He became what he was not. He became a man without ceasing to be God. He was man acting in completely subjection to the Father. He acted as a perfect servant and we know that He is no servant at all. He is the Almighty God. And yet, Jesus Christ, the scene shows us in the New Testament. I'm thinking about that scene when Jesus Christ invites His disciples in. And He takes off His coat. And He girds Himself with the towel of a servant. And He goes around with every, by every single disciple... And Jesus Christ, the God of heaven made flesh, washes the disciples' feet. He was a servant. How unimaginable is that type of service, that type of condescension, that he would so humble himself and what motivated him to do that is the declaration of his love. And so we see back in Exodus chapter 21 the fulfilling of his service, the declaring of his love, but then we also see the everlasting service. Notice back in Exodus 21, the Bible says in verse 5, And if the servant shall plainly say, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him unto the judges. He shall also bring him to the door, or unto the doorposts, the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl. Let me ask you this here, and you don't have to answer it out loud, but when is the last time we saw a scene at a doorpost in the book of Exodus? That's at the Passover. You remember last time it was at the Passover that the doorpost was uh, made preeminent where uh, the uh, children of Israel were to take a lamb, they were to hold the lamb for a certain amount of days, and then on the night of the Passover, they were to stand on the doorpost. Remember, that, that is where they were to uh, cut the lamb, where the lamb would bleed, and they were not to spill the blood on the ground. They were to catch the blood, and then they would uh, uh, take a reed, and they would, uh, in a sense, paint the blood on the doorpost. 
uh, think about we know nothing else. Let's pretend like we know nothing else in the Bible. But here we are in Exodus chapter 21, and here we're reading all through Genesis and all through Exodus, and there's only those references to the doorpost, the first of which is the Passover. And now this servant, because he's declared his love, he's taken to the doorpost, and that is the very same place where, by the way, his blood will be imprinted with a hole in the doorpost. Because he has declared his love for his master. I think that there is no other way to see this as we think about the entirety of the revelation of God's word. To see that this is a picture of Jesus Christ who would be pierced. Psalm 22, before there were any mention of a type of crucifixion tells us very clearly that his hands and his feet would be pierced. Here we see another instance where the servant is pierced. And I believe here we're, we're pointing ourselves to Jesus Christ. What we say here, here is a perfect servant. Here is a servant who is not required under the law to serve his master. But one who, because he loves his master, he willingly chooses to love, to, to love and to serve his master. And he decides to do something openly and publicly to show everybody what? That he loves his master. But not only that he loves his master, but that he also loves his wife and his children. No wonder he would make that law in the nation of Israel. What man who would truly love his family if his master had given him a wife and the children would say, Well, I don't want my wife and my children. I'd rather be free. No man who naturally loves his wife and children would do that. And by the way, it would be a telltale sign that this man has no love. The man who decides to serve his master because he loves his master, he loves his wife, he loves his children. You see, Jesus Christ not only demonstrated perfect obedience to his master, but he acted out of love for us. His service somehow, his service is not just to his master here in Exodus, chapter, in, in Exodus chapter 21. It is also a service that is shown to the wife and to the children. Here's why I say this. Because in verse 6 at the end he says, And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl. Everybody is going to know the decision that he's made. And that, that decision has been motivated by love because there is no other way for, a, man to be, for a, a man's ear to be pierced except that man had said, I love my master plainly. I love my wife. I love my children. And everybody would know that that piercing would be a direct reference to his love there is no other way to see it that's the only way he would be willing to take the pain because there's a greater motivating factor there's something beyond the pain that he's looking at the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 12 looking unto Jesus the author and the finisher of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the majesty on high and the Bible goes on to proceed to tell us uh, so that he might bring many sons into glory he looked beyond the pain love was the motivating factor 
But notice that his ministry, his service here in Exodus 21 is not over. The Bible says, He shall serve him forever. And this is what gives it away. This is not a reference just of a servant that's serving in this world because a servant in this world serves until he dies. Then his service is over. But there's someone who a service is not over. The Bible says Jesus Christ became a sacrifice for us and he ascended up on high and he is now our high priest. And by the way, he ever liveth to make intercession for us according to the will of God. I want to bring your attention to one more reference in the book of Luke in chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. Notice Luke chapter 12. Notice with me. Let's begin reading in verse 31. Luke 12, 31. But rather seek ye the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell that ye have, and give alms. Provide yourselves bags, which wax not old, a treasure in the heavens that faileth not, where no thieves approacheth, neither moth corrupteth. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Let your loins be girded about, and your lights burning. And ye yourselves like unto men that wait for their Lord. When he will return from the wedding, and when he cometh and knocketh, they may open unto him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when he cometh, shall find watching. Verily I say unto you, that he, that's the Lord, he shall gird himself, and shall make them to sit down to meet, and will come forth and serve them. I don't know how I can comprehend this and wrap my mind around this but somehow God who condescended and became a man without ceasing to be God and lived a perfect sinless life and demonstrated what it meant to be a perfect servant even got down to wash the disciples feet by the way including Judas washing his feet and the Bible says that when the Lord comes for us he's going to sit us at meat and here's what he's going to do he's going to serve us That is unimaginable to me. To think that the God of heaven would continue and have an everlasting service and that one day when we reach heaven and we have this inheritance that that is all already unimaginable and as we see the Lamb of God on the throne as it had been slain that the one who gave himself for us the one who is God who deserves all the glory all the praise will humble himself still and serve us. Jesus told his disciples in John 14, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that that where I am, there he may be also. You would think that a God who humbled himself says, You know, I'm going to wait for you to come, and when you come, you can work for me. And build those mansions. No. 
He is actively working on our behalf and right now somehow is serving us and his ministry is towards us for our benefit, for his glory, but our benefit. And one day, according to Luke chapter 12, our Lord will serve us. No wonder the only thing you can do in the book of Revelation is when you see him. The only thing you can do is all the rewards that you get in this life. The only natural response of any born-again Christian who sees God for who he truly is. The only thing he can do is take out his crown, take off his crown and cast it at his feet. Because he is the only one who deserves the honor, the glory and the praise. Jesus Christ is the perfect servant. You say, well, okay, he's the perfect servant. How does that apply to us? I just want us to be reminded that whenever we think that we're too good or better than somebody else or more deserving than somebody else or somehow after all that God has done for us somehow we want to try to conform God to to what we want after what he has done for us and after what he will do for us I really have no words what, what do you say of such a God who would become this for us who would sacrifice himself for us and who would announce one day that he will serve us I don't know what else to say but to say this what Paul said to the church at Rome I beseech you therefore brethren by the mercies of God that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice holy acceptable unto God which is your reasonable service let's not think it extraordinary to serve God if we engaged in and see it as a privilege to serve an earthly king or an earthly man of any type of authority how much greater should our regard be when we serve the God of heaven everything pales in comparison to that that's why the admonition of the New Testament is let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus.